It's autumn in the Greenway, and the Agnar have come to mate. Of the hundreds of bulls that descend on the valley, only the strongest will find a companion, and so they must vie for the few females that arrive. Oh yeah, we see the largest of the bulls gathered at the river's edge, battling for supremacy. The combat can become quite fierce, but only one thing can drive the beasts mad. A strange object there in the water. This thing is a small machine, sometimes found in the different nations of Alfheim and beyond. It is called simply the RPG Mainframe. If Attenborough came to Alfheim, the possibilities. Greetings, programs. It's all hankering for now. Ingrid Bernal, Branch Gilhelm here, your buddy back from Runehammer. And uh, welcome back to the podcast. Hanging out here on RPG Mainframe. And we got a fun one today, a juicy one. So strap yourselves in. It's going to be a bumpy ride. We are going to be talking about a big old campaign recap on my Gauntlegrim campaign. Now, you guys may have noticed a little bit of a change of current in my work lately, and that is because all my effort is going into my table game. I've almost cleared up all these commissions from this year, and then a lot of things are in store, but the main effort that I've been doing, both crafting, designing, making notes, all this kind of stuff, it's all going into my table game. Nothing replaces that feeling of your homies getting all psyched because uh, D&D night is a blast. And so the name of the campaign is quite simply Gauntlegrim. Now, if you guys have been following the Mainframe podcast and uh, listening to me and checking out pictures here and there, you probably have an inkling of what's been going on in this campaign. I even had one campaign recap there on YouTube, uh, the first one that I did for the opening of the campaign. But right here on Mainframe, where my true shield wall is, my peoples, my lumpy-headed weirdos, and thank you, everybody. Thank you, patrons, and welcome new patrons to the podcast. You guys are going to get the juicy version. I want to break it down. And I'm, I'm not here to say, look how cool my campaign is. But rather, it's to show the twists and turns that are involved between really imaginative players and a fully invested dungeon master like myself. I mean, when I go in to do a campaign, I am all in on this thing. So the real point of the, the campaign recap is to just show you like how crazy the twists and turns can be and how unpredictable and how okay that is. Now, my last podcast was all about dynamic campaigns, so we don't need to go into all that again. But I'm still kind of on this same mission because this is where my brain is these days. How to make a campaign fun, how to make the progression lasting, how to make things evolve and unfold. Rather than in the one shot, you really just want a really punchy, compact little piece of story. In a campaign, the magic is the context and the ongoing evolution, right? So here is a quick look, and by quick I mean in-depth look, at 
Dontalgrim, my latest campaign here. So, session one was titled Brunor's Call. Now, my players had already told me that they were interested in the Gontelgrim idea. We had a few different ideas on the table. We're just talking on Facebook um, before any gameplay happened or even characters have been created. I'm just like, what do you guys think would be cool? You know, do you like mazes? Do you like snow? Do you like fire, demons? Do you, do you like creepy stuff? What? And we came to this Gontelgrim idea, and I really was fired up about Gontelgrim because of the novel, and so we came to this. Okay, so Brunor is the king from the uh, the D&D novels, and we are blending these different worlds, as I've mentioned in some other podcasts that I've done. But the way that I began things and the way that I gave gravity to everything that needed to follow is that the king himself, and my one of my favorite kings from all lore, has called upon the heroes to come to his aid and to answer for like a kingly errand. And the reason, you know, there's some military campaigns that are using up most of his forces and there's some other elements at play that the reason he needs these specific individuals. Now, I also believe that level one characters, even when they're level one and not very equipped, are some of the most remarkable people on the landscape. So I imagine a common person having all their stats are eight and they have one hit point and they don't use magic and don't really, I mean, Think of, uh, I think of myself, for example, I, I don't have a battle axe and like a recovery skill and a awesome like suit of magical chain mail and stuff. Like that. So I consider them remarkable. So the king needs remarkable people. Okay, so we kick things off with this kind of feeling of importance. And actually, we had a royal writ, you know, like this, this letter with this cool, like um, melted metal seal that's on this thing. And it's, it's, totally legit. And all three of them are sent this writ individually and they gather. And so they meet as they're going up the trail to the doors of Gontelgrim. Now I imagine this like every good dwarven undermountain where it has these massive gates with these huge dwarven statues on either side that are like the size of a small foothill, you know, carved hewn from solid bedrock, you might say. And so they get this initial impression of like, we're about to get into something really epic and important. But there's a little bit of a hubbub as they enter the halls and a little bit of a panic and everybody seems to be leaving the halls of Gontelgrim. This is strange. So as the players are arriving, the characters, I should say. And so they're walking in and of all these sort of um, departing parties, you know, various dwarves and people who live in the city and even like royal viziers and military, they're all leaving. But among them, one person bumps into the characters and this is Gibble Tinkernot. Gibble Tinkernot is a very nervous gnome with a backpack full of blueprints and plans. And he has nothing to say to the characters. He's just like, oh, excuse me, excuse me, I have to go, I have to go. You know, that's his whole character. And there's a brief but seemingly meaningless interaction between the characters and this gnome. Now, for the sake of the podcast, I can reveal to you guys that Gibble Tinkernot is actually clutch, absolutely central to the overarching plot of my idea behind the campaign. Now, exactly how it's going to go and what's going to happen, I don't know yet because the story hasn't unfolded with the players involved. But I do know just from a little bullet that I wrote in my journal somewhere, this guy is critical to the overall sort of conspiracy or plan that is going to be the evil that the players are working against. But I just put him in the opening adventure to be a total troll against my players. Now, about four four sessions later, they start to realize this guy was actually a huge deal and 
they just kind of walked right past him, but that's the fun of it, right? So they encounter Tinkernot, they go on in, and as they're talking to the king, he says, you know, there's been saboteurs in the kingdom, the primordial, which powers the city, this giant like flame titan is being unleashed, just like in the novel, and we don't know who did it or why, but we, we just, we, there's no time to worry about right now, we have to try to save the city, and all the cities around Gondolgrim, like if this thing explodes and this thing is released, it's going to lay waste to the landscape. We've got to do something. I need your help. And he says, basically, what I need you to do is find a way to the astral plane. And you have to find a way to stop this person or thing called the Traveler. The Traveler is somehow responsible for unleashing the Primordial. Before there are times to get any more answers, there's a little bit of an interaction, some mug drinking, some great role play with the king that was really fun. But before any real detail comes through, the, the cataclysm arrives. The floor begins to shake. This huge pillar falls over. I've got a mechanic for random pillars falling over and cutting holes in the floor. And out of these holes in the floor come the flamekin. And the flamekin are this endless legion of sort of fire creatures. And these are going to be a recurring nuisance throughout my campaign. But I have some notes on how these monsters work. They're very simple flame monsters that do ambient damage and other things like this. So these flames are coming up, and the flamekin can teleport from flame to flame, and they have a taskmaster who's a big flame guy with a whip that can make you lose a turn, and like this whole thing is unfolding, and there's really no time. So the players, well, their characters, and Brunor and his duke, whose name's Scood, Baron Scood, they're all fighting, but the floor is collapsing in such huge chunks that after a series of sort of crazy dice rolls, the king and his baron fall down into the forges. And as they do so, they're presenting the characters with these brutal choices, which are, is, are they going to follow down into the forge, which could mean certain death to try to save the king? Or are they going to sort of follow his orders, which are to go up into this tower and to see if they can find a way to the astral plane and sort of follow his final orders? And they have a big discussion about this. They wind up... Uh, thinking about we should probably try to follow his orders rather than just dive down into the fire to help him. But before they can even execute a plan, they're overwhelmed by the flamekin. They almost die, and they wind up like firemen carrying each other out of there. At one point, we had two of three characters down. We were one character down from a first-session TPK. <laughs> so they flee. They just straight-up flee Gontelgrim. So they get out of Gondolgrim as it's partially collapsing and there are gouts of flame erupting and they run down the hillside back to the town of Red Bridge. And there they take refuge and try to get some supplies and they meet this guy named Garsveld. And Garsveld sees that the Dwarven Undermountain is, is you know, potentially going to be destroyed. And he is loyal to the core, to King Brunor, and he vows to help the, the, the characters to return to Gondolgrim and to follow the king's orders and try to find a way to stop this. That was episode one. So we had some high moments, some low moments. The dice were a little cruel mid-session. Um, we had some great sort of self-sacrifice healer action that happened. And we had just, you know, players getting used to their characters. We were also experimenting with soak armor rather than to hit armor, um, which if you guys know, Blood and Snow uses a soak method rather than a two hit. And we wound up seeing just, uh, especially the second session, that it was just too hard for our tank to stay up, especially with this kind of epic level of gameplay. And so we went back to the normal ICRPG armor method. And now we've been experimenting and thinking about some ways to do a little bit of both so that we get some armor decay, but we have a really tough tank and, and moving on. And that was kind of our mechanical discussion at the end of, of that session. And it extended into the next session as well.
Okay. So that's session one. We've got to kick off. I think everybody was really invested into their characters, and we have a gnome, a human fighter, and a human healer. And you, you're going to see this is a little bit important because our party com composition changes later. So season, session two comes up. We have this session is titled Allies in Redbridge. So they've just met Garsveld at this local sort of climbing supply store, and he swears to help them. And they're picking his brain for knowledge about how to get back into Gontogrim. They can take the frontal assault through the doorways. There's a mage tower up around the back that they could potentially climb. And then there's a collapsed sort of partially dug back entrance that the dwarves have been working on that could be used. Now, I kind of have an idea of, uh, as the DM, about how all three of these entrances might work and what could happen, but honestly, I kind of don't, and it's really, I need a bit of a decision from the players at the end of a session so I have a little better prep for the next one, and that's how I provide branches. So if I have three possible branches, I need to make sure I get at least a, a bit of a decision from them so I can do a little bit better prep. So they're down in town, they're messing around with Garsfeld, and of course the Flamekin come pouring out of Gontelgrim, run down the hill, and they're attacking the town. Now my players have a great moment where they're fighting the Flamekin in town. Town is largely wood, and so things are catching on fire. And I had a great moment that I have to report to you guys, um, which is um, my player who's playing our gnome warlock. He sees that every timer, every per timer, we're getting more flamekin spawn. They're just pouring into town and there's potentially a limitless number of them, right? They're like an army. And so he suddenly sort of steps out of character. He looks at the other two players and he's like, you guys, this is kind of totally out of character and meta here, but we have to stem the tide or we have to get out of this grind. Like we're gonna be grinding ourselves against this army of flamekin basically ad infinitum. And I loved this moment at the dungeon master because he stepped outside of just being the character and trying to be cool and get more kills. And he's seeing more into the game design and saying like, I think, you know, the DM here is just going to keep hurling these things at us unless we think ourselves out of it. So we either need to become concealed or lose their trail somehow, or like get out of this grind. This is brilliant thinking to me. I love to see this in a player. So they come up with a plan. They make, they have this yak, this supply yak, and they create an illusory version of the yak and kind of create a diversion a little bit and slip out of the town undetected and the flamekin don't know where they are and they buy themselves some time. Okay, so they escape town. They decide to take the mage tower, which they're not going to go up and through it because Everyone who's ever played an RPG knows that mage towers are like floor after floor of challenges, right? Which is kind of what I had planned. <laughs> so they decide they're going to bypass this by climbing the exterior of the tower. And this is also going to keep them hidden from the flamekin. They're going to secretly climb up the outside of this tower. So instead of playing the climb as this long slog of rolls, we just have a nice table discussion, which is sort of like a negotiation of how hard this climb is going to be. And it's all going to come down to like two rolls. So we talk about how they have climbing gear, about how there's this magical storm that's going to slow them down. That then on the other hand, like the stones are crumbling, but on the other hand, they have an expert with them. And it's like factor per factor, you know, how can these create plus or one minuses to sort of some supreme role? Or let's like, I'll negotiate towards hard and they need to negotiate me back toward easy. So we do this whole thing. We get down to it. We make some rolls. And with a little bit of, uh, of trial and error, they manage to climb this tower and go straight to the pinnacle rather than going through the series of rooms. They make it up to the pinnacle. There's this magical storm gathering. There are these four stones. There's a glyph in the center. This is all classic D&D &D stuff. And there is Thibbledorf Puent 
also from the D&D novels. And he's sort of in a catatonic state, like he's, I mean, he's astrally projected and he's laying on this magical glyph. This storm is gathering. The players come up and they're like, we got to help him. And they drag him off the glyph and they they tether him back and he returns from the astral plane. He's like, no, what have you done? I needed to be there. I was sent there by the king and now we have to find a way back. And like, ah, this voice is coming from the clouds. It's saying, you don't know what you're meddling with. And then some kind of guardian is activated from the astral plane. And this is a, a another creature I invented called a phase hulk or a phase beast. Works a lot like a phase spider from D&D, but with some fun ICRPG stats and mechanics. And this thing is zipping around and it's invisible. And it only appears when it phases into solid matter and like goes through things. The players realize they need to align these four stones to reactivate the glyph and potentially open the gate back to the astral plane. No problem, right? So they start trying to move these heavy stones as this storm is rolling across and the phase beast is giving them hell. And our gnome rolls a double one, which in ICRPG, as you probably know, is a blunder. He does this blunder right when the stone is on the very edge of the top roof of this tower. So we use our little arrow dice. If you guys seen, I have a dice with a, it's a D6 with arrows on it. And you roll it and it'll give you a direction. So we decide which direction his bumble goes. And of course, it's right off the edge. So he, one of these keystones slips off the edge of the tower. It's made out of some kind of heavy metal. It punches right through the ground and disappears. And their chance of opening the astral gate, are, their chances are completely gone. So the session ends with this massive blunder. And my player, God bless him because his role playing is so good. He actually lies to the other two characters and says that the phase beast knocked it off the tower. <laughs> and that lie is still amongst the characters. Now, the players know that it was the player who did it, but the characters don't know that. And it's like that was the end of session two. It was insanely epic. It was just a huge bungle. And that ended our second session. But what it gave us was a massive twist. I could have never anticipated that. And even if I did, it completely derails my whole idea with the campaign, which was to get them into this sort of planar Bill and Ted kind of roller coaster ride. Now they have no way to get to the astral plane and they're stuck on top of this crumbling tower with a, a creature they cannot take on, basically. That's the end of the second session. It was such a big, big ending. There was just such a crescendo and then just right there we stopped it. And they had agreed they were going to go back down through the tower. They didn't run a risk climbing down a crumbling tower. So they're going to go down through the wizard's workshop and they're looking for clues in there about how they might be able to reopen the astral plane. Okay, session two is done. Now my players are really attached to their characters. They're getting a sense for the story and things are feeling good. By the way, we also had Port Garshfeld in there. He's basically a crossbowman. And as they were approaching the tower, they encountered some sort of undead, uh, which were the result of the primordial being loosed. And he was killed. And um, they were happy about that. <laughs> okay, but now they have Thibbledorf Quent with them, another dwarf warrior who can be an NPC. Now, generally, I've found that players can't stand NPCs because they, they generally aren't that cool and don't do that much. And if they're too cool and do too much, they're also hated. So it's really hard to find a balance with a, an ally NPC. Okay, so next we get to session three. And this is uh, what I titled The Wizard's Workshop. Now, this one... My prep was not that good, you guys. <laughs> I'm not proud of that. I had some ideas of what might happen, but I was also having fun doing prep about 20 minutes before the session and then also uh, having a pause, like an intermission when my prep ran out and, you know, kind of sending the guys out to have a soda and, you know, make some nachos and doing a quick like 10 minute prep. 
um, thinking about what might be coming next. And then playing monsters out of the book in a pinch and generally just sketching out, um, you know, like level layouts, most importantly for me, and a little bit of numbers, you know, like what my DCs are going to be, um, and a little bit of numbers, like I've been doing all my enemies in tiers now. So you have a tier one, two, or three, or four enemy, and those have fixed stats. So if you guys take a look at, uh, I think, Twitter and Facebook, I've posted pictures of my, my tier system. But it can let you do prep on monster difficulty in, in seconds. And does it take away a little bit of nuanced detail? Absolutely. But it lets you respond to player choice, which I think is more important. So we come to session three, the wizard's workshop. They're going to go down through this tower. And so they go, they get down in there, and of course the place is crawling with the flamekin. They begin battling the flamekin. They're, they're rummaging through all this wizard stuff. And this was a chance for me to just shower them with loot. They had been through a lot so far, and so I gave them magic books, I gave them items and chests, I gave them weapons. They're working through some doorways. They meet a sort of a new category of flamekin called a reaver who has a ranged attack. Um, nothing crazy, but again, a difficult fight, and Thibbledorf offers to hold the door, kind of, you know, hold the door, right? I mean, hold the door, <laughs> as they make an escape, and they find this strange fungus. It's an interdimensional fungus. And as they're trying to make their escape, on the one hand, the tower is crumbling into ruin, and on the other, our gnome is figuring out that this fungus is actually sort of a portal, that it can be used as a teleportation to another plane. And so they really have no option. They could, I mean, they could kind of try to run down the crumbling tower and get back to town and, and reconnoiter. But once they figure out that this fungus is a teleportation device, and remember, they're trying to get to another dimension, the astral plane. So in their minds as players, I think they saw this as a, a bit of a MacGuffin. But in my mind, I never intended it that way. I just wanted to give them options. And of course, they take that option. They activate this thing one by one. And our last character to activate it activated it mid-fall as he's falling out of the tower. He made a couple of clutch rolls to touch this, this uh, interdimensional fungus mid-air. And he barely makes it. So, whoa. Now I need my guys to step out and go get nachos because what just happened? Where are they teleporting to? Now, luckily, I did have a diagram I'd been working on on sort of the map of dimensions. And so I'm going to take them to Davokar, which is the edgeless sort of massive forest from Simbaroom. If you guys are familiar with that game, definitely check it out. It's worth a look. But in my world, Davokar is not a forest. It's a dimension. It's like a planar location of this ancient forest, which is kind of the, the lifeblood of the universe in a way. It's almost like an Yggdrasilian kind of metaphor. So they're going to teleport to Davakar, but without their means of teleportation. Remember, they dropped the fungus. The fungus is how they teleport from plane to plane. So it's a one-way ticket, y'all. <laughs> so they need to go make some nachos, and I need to do a little bit of prep on Davakar. So as we enter this ancient forest, I switch my terrain, right, and I get something ready, and I basically just provide them with a little bend in the woods. I have some grabber mushrooms, and then I have an encounter with a bear, there's like this bear that's being mind controlled and then some elves kind of come out of the woods and they're very shady. My players then spend the remainder of session three having this role play discussion with these elves and the sort of motivations and alignment of these elves is very dubious and hard to figure out. This is partially because that's how I perceive elves. Elves in my world are also always sort of gray between good and evil. But you guys... I did not know the role of the elves in the story at this point. So I was playing my character just as much as a player plays their character. Players don't have scripts written before game sessions of what they're going to say. That wouldn't work. 
So I don't know why a dungeon master often feels that he or she needs to do that. All you need to do is be able to role-play your characters. And I found myself role-playing these elves who are looking at these intruders. Role-playing elves who have been in this forest for centuries, who are looking at these intruders and are, you know, you know sort of you know, narrow-eyed at them, right? They, they may be good, they may be evil. I don't know yet. I haven't written or decided what these elves are. I'm just role-playing the moment. And it was a really cool, nuanced exchange. It was very creepy and weird. At the end, I have the, the elves kind of stand down because one of my players sort of convinced them we're kind of on the same side. We're both working against the flame can and blah, blah, blah. So the elves kind of vanish into the forest. There's a bit of a lull, and then this Krieg character appears. Now, the Krieg are a tribe of ogres that appear in the Rise of the Rune Lords campaign by Pathfinder, which I've also been mining for ideas. But this first Krieg appears, and he is transforming as he appears from, like, werewolf form back into Krieg ogre form. So we have a werewolf ogre. This is bad. You don't want to fight a werewolf ogre, but as he approaches, the players decide that session end. They don't want to tangle it with this guy right at the end of a, you know, almost four-hour session because it looks like it might get a little crazy. Okay, so that was session three, the wizard's workshop. So we go from the tower through this portal fungus and into Davakar, and now we're in a completely different area. And after the session, my players mention, you know, it's so nice to have those changes of scenery. You know, the changes of scenery are almost more rewarding than victory or defeat. It's like just seeing new places is always a big deal. And that's how I've always been with video games, too. I don't necessarily want to win or be awesome. I just want to see the next thing. So got a comment about that. Okay, now we move into session four, which I simply entitled Davokar. So this is them moving through and exploring this ancient forest and more so trying to get to the bottom of who the Krieg are here. Are they friend or foe? Who the elves are? Are they friend or foe? And how can they proceed? You got to realize at this point, they have no way of proceeding. There's no way to go back through the teleportation glyph because they don't have a fungus. And they're just, they don't know what they're doing. They're still just trying to find a way to the astral plane. So they're just flat-footed right now. They need to explore a little bit and get some more information. So that begins. They, they take on this uh, initial Krieg who they befriend. I think they were just a little bit terrified of this character. And so they, they diffuse the situation. And they lead him off with this sort of uh, illusion of this bear that he seems to be hunting. And they kind of diffuse the situation. They start looking at these carvings and these ancient stones. They get a sense that there's an elven fortress nearby or was an elven fortress long ago. So they're going to make their way through the woods. Uh, there's some other details that occur. Then they find this elven fortress. Remember, they're just looking for any clue. When they find it, they do see this Krieg sort of matron. She's this huge corpulent leader of the Krieg, apparently, and she's guarding this magical-looking doorway. Now, to the players, this magical doorway, this is like this is like the 18th green, right? They are, they're inexorably drawn to doorways like this. They think, okay, this is our gateway to the next piece of gameplay. At this point in my prep, I didn't even know where that door went. I just know that a doorway will always, you know, draw characters. So they move forward and they sort of inadvertently get into this huge combat. And Mammy is the name of this Krieg matron. And she has all these Krieg sort of underlings who are smaller but all have bow and arrows. And they're all hidden in the thickets. So these players are being showered with arrows. And we had 
a very, very sort of ill-fated battle that happened where the players are having a really hard time staying up. So they kept going from two people down. There's one guy up. Then there's two guys up. Then the, f- the first guy drops. Now there's one guy up. He picks the other guy up. You've, you guys have probably had battles that go this way where all they're trying to do is get cover. They keep dropping and dragging each other and healing each other and like, holy moly, really tough battle. But because... Uh, our no Morlock, instead of using his fireball as a combat spell, he sent it up as a flare, and it draws everybody out of the woods. So the elves return, and then there's also a Krieg who isn't sure that he wants the Krieg to turn evil. The Krieg used to be good long ago. There's this whole thing that comes. The elves come to help. Holy moly, this was a huge, huge session, and I posted some really fun pictures of this session on Twitter. Um, where the terrain and the and the board was just really fun. I love doing a big complex battle when you're doing 3D terrain. So they managed to overcome Mammy. There's a big exchange where Mammy has been looking for this hand relic to open this door. This door hasn't been opened in 70 years. Our warlock figures it out. We've got some great fighter action that happens. Uh, just a massive, frenetic battle. And now the players really have a moment of choice. They can take the tunnels. They learn from their new Krieg and Elven friends. They can go toward this wall where the Krieg and the Elves are warring. Or they have a chance to maybe go into the deep forest to look for a fungus that they could use to teleport to, to get to the astral plane. They learn that the Elves here guard this astral gate. They're inundated with information. And I'm just wanting to see what they're, what kind of bait they're going to take. What do they want to do next session? And this winds up being the last part of our session four, which is this big discussion. What are we going to do? What do you guys want to do? What do you think? What, what's next? And this is truly open-ended. I have no prep ahead of this. I just want to give them this complex, there are no true bad guys type situation. You can take any one of these three to four options or invent your own option of a way to get to the astral plane. What do you think? Okay, so that's session four. Now, in the impending week, we have a lot of Facebook discussion. And then also our human priest player, he uh, just because he had a little bit of a long drive to get to my house and then also uh, is allergic to my kitten. And then also, I think our frenetic uh, brand of play um, with like a lot of rolling and quick turn times was a little gnarly for him. And so he bowed out of the game. No hard feelings. It's all good. So we replaced him with another friend. Um, that we've played with before. Actually, my huge campaign we did a few years ago, he was in, and he just jumped right in. He's just like, hell yeah, he's down. So we have our replacement, and we come to session five. And session five was a week ago. Session five, I didn't tell them this title, but the title to me is the Mykonid Tunnels. Now, they didn't know that Mykonids are down there. So faced with these choices, my my players decide to take the tunnels, which are sort of presented as a bit of a shortcut that go under the ancient forests toward their goal, which is the Elven Astral Gate. So they're going to take these ancient tunnels that haven't been opened for 70 years. So here I'm snickering and rubbing my hands and so happy that they chose that. So very quickly, after we get this clear decision from the players, I get busy. I've got a lot of crafting to do, making a bunch of mushroom-themed stuff. So making myconids and various fungus terrain and stuff to really run a really fun uh, tunnel crawl. We also have our new character. And so before they go down into the tunnels, they have this new character appearing. He's this wildling character. He's kind of a peaceful elf who just lives in the woods, who's just sort of curious and wants to help. And great opening exchange, although it's always a little bit awkward, but at the same time, beautiful. Because when people meet in real life, it's a bit awkward. And there's something really interesting to see that happen where you as the dungeon master don't force it. Don't just say like you meet in a tavern. These are honest 
character encounters for the first time. This guy comes out of the woods. He's like, hey, what's going on? And they are answering and telling what's, what they've been through and really fun little bit of RP and then down into the tunnels they go. Now, all of you guys out there and, and girls who are dungeon masters know that when you get your characters down into the tunnels with a, a clear directive that they need, to, it's a blast. Tunnels are so easy to run and so fun to place obstacles and do the sort of timer threat treat balance. It's just a blast. It's enclosed space that makes perfect sense for D&D, and it's always a hoot. So down into the tunnels they go. I have my acid fungus, of course, which eat loot because I've been loading my characters up on loot. So it's about time to start to thinking about taking it away. So I'm setting up some trap, some trap or threat items in my tunnels that are not focused on doing HP damage, but are focused on doing loot damage. Now, the way that I do this is if they fail a save, I just have them say, how many pieces of loot do you have that are equipped? They'll say eight and I'll say roll a D8 and then whatever they roll, they count down the list and destroy that. I know, brutal, right? But that's how it goes. They come in, they have some insects that are haranguing them, they have some poison spores, of course, and then they meet a young myconid. Now, not really knowing anything about myconids as players, not just as characters, they're kind of, you know, throwing rocks into the dungeon out of, uh, you know, caution. And our fighter throws a big rock at this sort of quivering mushroom creature or being and hits it, and it clearly exhibits pain, and it's a youngling myconid that hasn't developed, like, tentacles and legs yet and can't speak. And he basically threw a rock at a baby. And so the baby gets scared and is running off, and relations with the myconids are not going to go well. Because remember, I haven't really decided that the myconids are the enemy of these characters. They don't even know these characters. But if you assault their young, that's not so good. So anyways, more action ensues. They work their way through the tunnels. They're chasing this myconid, but they're also fleeing these insect swarms. And then they find this sort of mucus membrane, which the myconids use to communicate through the tunnels. The, the young one is clearly calling for aid. Um, we have some more stuff happen. And then the adult myconid arrives and it calls for reinforcements. Even after negotiating a little bit, it's unclear quite what level of anger they have toward the characters besides them being intruders. We have this kind of interesting... Uh, very cautious exchange with the myconids. And then at the end of session five, the myconid like reinforcements arrive and they are here to fight. And the myconids have clearly been told by this youngling that these characters like hurt it and like, but I don't think my players are going to let themselves be the permanent like blood enemy of the myconids. I think they're set on being their friends and I hope that's the case. So that's the end of session five. And now I'm ready to do my prep. I have them where I want them. They don't need to make any big choices, so I know what prep I can do. They're still going through the tunnels. They're trying to find their way under the forest, right? I know they're going to do that, so I can set up a series of tunnels to impede them and to draw them. To pull, Remember how trap theory works. You pull them with motivation or with what they need. You confine them with tight space, and then you drop the hammer on them, which is the main threat, which can be a trap, could be the myconids, or... It can be what I have in mind. And so it, it, I really hope my players aren't listening to any of the podcasts because the spoilers are abound. But the real enemy here is not the, the Myconids. It is this thing called the darkness. So there has been a lot of curiosity and clue dropping about why the Krieg have turned evil. 
and like why darkness has come to Davakar, why things seem meaner than they used to be, why werewolf or lycanthropy, lycanthropy, why werewolfism <laughs> is spreading. It's because of this force called the darkness. And so in the surface world, there have been these endless wars at these big walls and all the blood has seeped down through the soil into the tunnels and pooled in a coalescent underground lake. And from that lake, this thing has emerged. And this thing is evil and rot and hatred incarnate. And it's bringing forth all these insects. And it's also like bringing lycanthropy to the surface and causing the, the elves to be more evil. And this thing is called the darkness, and it's actually a creature. It's a huge creature. And this creature is uh, taken from the Simbarum core book, which is, uh, it's basically um, modeled after a construct, I believe is what they call it in Simbarum. It's this giant, almost forest elemental type creature. So I've made this miniature, and I, I don't know if I've posted photos of it yet or not, but it was really fun to make. I did some sculpture work. I had some a little plastic skull I used. I used an old owlbear mini and kind of painted it and mutilated it and did some fun, got some other stuff on there. So you'll see some pictures of that coming here and there, maybe Facebook or Twitter, so keep an eye out. But this is going to be session six, and session six is entitled The Darkness. So if they can sort of get through this whole challenge and make it through the tunnels, then we're going to have them emerging in the elven kingdom of Davakar uh, with the astral gate somewhere nearby. And I don't fully know what they're going to do or how they plan to approach it. And so that I'm going to have to wait until then to do that prep. So I'm not even fully sure what the exit is from the tunnels. I'm, I'm not sure what that form is going to take. We're going to play in a week, a week from tonight. And so I've got a week to you know come up with something devious. So that's everything that has happened in our campaign so far, five sessions. And the, the thing I want to show you guys is I titled this campaign Gauntlegrim, right? Because you know what I wanted to do? I wanted it to be in a big dwarven undermountain for several sessions and explore how diverse and exciting it could be and the fate of the dwarves and how the primordial is doing all this stuff. It's all cool. And there's a forest under there. And then there's the underdark. And then there's, and there's all these different ideas that all occur in Gauntlegrim. It just didn't go that way. It just did not go that way. And I think the fact that it didn't has made it more rich and more diverse than I ever would have thought it could be. I never would have made it this sort of scattered and crazy. And herein lies sort of what I've been talking about, about dynamic campaigns, is not only are dynamic campaigns cool, they they do require you letting it happen. And that's what episode 34, set 34 excuse me, was about. This is Mainframe episode 35, and it is just a straight up million mile an hour campaign recap for my table game. So it has been so fun so far. And I got to say, just like I said in the last podcast, it has just reminded me of why I do this hobby. You know, I, I, I don't do it for the documentation of the hobby. I do it for the doing of the hobby. And I know you guys relate to me on that front. This is the essence of what keeps us coming back for more, what keeps us being creative. And it has been a blast. So as the campaign evolves, you know, I won't do it session by session, but after four or five more sessions, we're going to come back. Hopefully by then we'll be on like a mainframe episode 40 or so. And I'll let you guys know how the whole thing goes down. So thank you guys so much for listening. And for episode 36, we're going to get back to basics. We're going to have a nice mailbag day and talk a little bit of theory. So if you guys have got some new developments in your game, you got questions, ideas, or concepts, 
please email them to hankerin.furanail at gmail.com with the words mailbag in the subject, and I will do my best to provide robust and thoughtful answers to your questions. <laughs> okay, so thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you so much for your ongoing patronage here on Runehammer. And there's a lot of fun stuff ahead in 2019. I cannot wait. It's been a great year, but I think it's going to be even better next year. Um, and I'm just so excited, really excited, too, to see so many people playing Blood and Snow and having fun with that. So if you haven't downloaded that and you're a patron, just jump in there. And especially welcome to the new Immortals. We've got some new Immortals appearing uh, recently. So great to have you guys at the highest pledge level. That is awesome. And um, who knows what form that's going to take. Last year, we played an Immortals invitation only one shot. And I think we'll probably do that again this year in January. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, rock on, you guys. I hope you guys had a great holiday if you were doing Thanksgiving in the States. And um, the, the true holiday season is coming upon us here. And I love Christmas time. And I love New Year's. And uh, I love goodwill towards men and love in the air and all that good stuff. So I hope you guys are excited, as excited as I am. Okay, this is Brandish Gilhelm signing off. Strength, honor, and beer, y'all. Gontelgrim. I'll see you on the internet, all right? I'm out. <laughs>